Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and here we are in our natural habitat. Some people think it's ugly, other people think it's uglier. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Awesome Movie Year, where a bunch of uglies talk about movies. Thank you. That is the narration to the nature documentary about awesome movie year. <laughs> because in this season, we have been talking about the films of 1953, and we are here at our documentary episode in which we will be talking about a nature documentary. It is The Living Desert. It is the first feature length film in the Walt Disney True Life Adventures series, which prior to this, had released a number of very successful short films. And this film uh, was also very successful. In addition to being a uh, major Disney release, it was the Oscar winner for Best Documentary Feature Film. And uh, it was a huge movie at the box office. Grossed $2.6 million on its budget of $300,000. It, at the time, which is a weird thing, became the highest grossing film of all time in Japan, which I don't know how long yeah. that lasted. Probably like not that. all that long. That's wow. a good stat. <laughs> that is. That is. Yeah. Um, and won some other awards, too. In addition to that Best Documentary Feature Film Oscar, it won a Special Achievement Award at the Golden Globes. It was one of, I think, nine films designated for the International Prize at the 1954 Cannes Film Festival. And at the 1954 Berlin Film Festival, it won the Big Gold Medal for documentaries and culture films. That is the official name of that award. Mm. So and a special achievement from the Golden Globes. I, I think you would admit. Did you say that? I did. No. But you uh, can say it again. I also won an Oscar for best documentary. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a, interesting because we watched this movie and I think we can all agree, as Jason was kind of uh, mocking there, it's super hokey. And it's not the kind of movie that you would expect to win those prestigious awards nowadays but uh, at the time it was it was a pretty big deal well they did a really good job of filming editing pacing it out i could see how this uh type of thing could take a hold especially like i was like you know thinking about japan and i'm like how cool must it have been to learn about the southwest of america via landscape and animals in a in a project like this yeah, and I suppose maybe we take for granted now that this is the kind of thing that we see on TV constantly. Right, right. Um, but maybe, yeah, especially you're right, in another country, this might have been actually quite exotic because it's not something that that people had access to just all the time. Josh, you point. mentioned that uh, these True Life Adventures, this was the first one that was feature length. Although uh, Seal Island, one of the short subjects, had already won an Oscar from the True Life Adventures a couple of years yeah. before that. And these were hugely popular. I think the, the True Life Adventure series overall won five Oscars for short films um, over time. So, yeah, Disney was uh, raking those in at the time. Have you ever seen Seal Island? I have not. I don't know if I've seen uh, any of these. Although, um, I mean, as I, as I noted down you know, for the legacy, that a lot of these, in addition to the short films that were actually short, the feature films were later like broken up into short films and shown as educational films. So I may have seen something like this in college or not in college, in school, in like elementary <laughs> school or something. But uh, I don't 
think I saw that. Did you, Jason? I did see it. And I learned something really interesting. Um, We're never going to survive unless we get a little bit crazy. Oh, that was just a big wind up for a joke. I was trying to take it seriously, give you some history, and you just made a seal joke. You can get kissed from a rose on Seal Island. Thank you. Thank you. That's that's really, that's really great. <laughs> Here, Josh, I'll give you a fun fact. The Academy okay. Award that Walt Disney earned for The Living Desert helped him make history as the individual with the most Oscar wins in a single year. At the 26th uh, Academy Awards, in addition to winning Best Documentary Feature Oscar, Disney also won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film for Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, the Academy Award for Best Documentary Short Subject for the Alaskan Eskimo, which might have been part of a series like this, and the Academy Award for Best Short Subject Too Real for Bear Country, which is also kind of probably something like this. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's crazy, I guess. I mean, this is maybe this is kind of a dumb thing to say, but, you know, Disney as this sort of monolithic corporation is so entrenched that we forget. Maybe I forget that, like, oh, Walt Disney, the person was like actually the producer of all these movies. And so he personally would have won, you know, Oscars like you were just describing as the as the producer of these films. And, uh, you know, as someone who would be somewhat hands on, I don't know how hands on he really was also probably as the you know, head of the company, he probably gets the producer credit on everything that they do. Uh, I wasn't around back then. And rumor has it, if I was, he might not have been a fan of me. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) maybe that's subject for another episode, perhaps. Yeah. We'll ask Uh, Kanye West. Yes. Um, So critics (laughs) were pretty wowed by this as a technical achievement, at least. And, And as we're saying, this is something that you didn't really see that much of other than these other Walt Disney shorts. It wasn't as common as it is now where you can turn on multiple cable channels and see nature documentaries all the time. So this was an impressive achievement as far as critics were concerned, although there were some uh, issues with the Disney aspects of it. So uh, Bosley Crowther in the New York Times said, the whole film is frankly intended to show the violent and dramatic ebb and flow of life in a waste of sand and cacti, and that it decidedly does. Indeed, if there is a sense of surfeit to be felt as the picture goes along, it is because of the sameness of the moral conflicts that occur in the varying scenes. Also, there is another weakness of the Disney boys evidenced in this film. The general public will not object to it, but the studious naturalists may. That is their playful disposition to edit and arrange certain scenes so that it appears the wildlife in them is behaving in human and civilized ways. However, Mr. Disney's earnest people have done a remarkable job of collecting some extraordinary footage, and his editors have assembled it well for excitement and fascination, more than for education. I I mean, I think you get the education because of the excitement and fascination, right? Like, if you're more invested in something, you're going to learn more because of it. Right. And I think, obviously, Disney as a corporation at the time, even more so now, was wholly focused on young audiences, on families. And you're going to, you can't draw those people in unless you make it kind of fun and goofy. And so, yeah, I think that is kind of necessary to, the, the, to quote some other Disney thing it's the spoonful of sugar. Right. To right. Help the medicine go down. Yeah. And also, you know, taking the time period into account, right? 1953, it's still a pretty new form and uh, something they're experimenting with. So 
I think, you know, that this is maybe a building block of uh, where future nature documentaries could have gone a, a little further away from that. Although, you know, Disney's had great success with all types of uh, documentaries following this format, uh, you know, about different species and different uh, habitats. So, you know, they found what works for them. Right. And I feel like, honestly, these complaints could be applied to current Disney nature documentaries, which. Oh, yes, in, I agree. In fact, do it, do, do more of this. I was surprised to realize than uh, than the living desert does. So uh, but again, this was this was the sort of common, most common complaint, even among the overall uh, wow factor for this film. Richard L. Coe in The Washington Post said, Marvelous indeed are the wonders the color cameras reveal to us about the lives that go on in the dark, forbidding North American desert. With what must have been nerve-wracking patience, director James Algar and his camera crews show us the inconceivable forces of nature, the struggles for survival, the astonishing entente cordiale, which seem to exist within the bitterest enmities. As is his inevitable habit, Mr. Disney has seen fit to draw from this the flattering conclusion that the insect, animal, and plant worlds have as a kind of ideal the same standards, material and moral, as those held by the proper law-abiding Americans of 1953. While there are, I don't doubt, some striking parallels, the notion, of course, is balderdash. Dave, do you think he picked that quote just to show off his French pronunciations? And his pronunciation of balderdash. Yeah. I just, I liked that he said balderdash, and I, I do enjoy the, the cadence of some of these 1950s. Did you ever viewers. play the board game balderdash? Growing up, probably that's. I played the Nintendo game. Was it based on the board game? No, it's totally different. But uh, what was the premise of that game? I you have to like dig in this tunnel and not get crushed by the boulders. Was Was it called Boulder Dash? Yeah, it was called Boulder Dash. It's like a play on words. Even further away from the topic here, like Dig Dug. It's like (laughs) Dig Dug. I guess there are rocks in this movie, so maybe we could. uh, Yeah, and and Josh, there are plenty of tunnels. I mean, True. I saw a mouse dig a tunnel to escape a snake in this and then yes. run through that tunnel, jump up into a different tunnel as a fake out tunnel. So, Josh, this is quite on topic. Yeah, totally. That sounds like something you would do in a video <laughs> game where you played a mouse trying to avoid a snake. Yeah, something. you totally could do that. And that would be entertaining and educational. You would be like learning about how to escape the predator by entertaining yourself by escaping the predator. Totally. Everything I know, I learned from video games. Well, you're yes. not a good example. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that that Richard Coe points out here in, in his sarcastic way is that it's not only that we are anthropomorphizing these animals, but they're embodying these kind of stolid middle class values, especially whenever they talk about like the courtships between the male and female animals and stuff like that. Yeah. And Do you have an issue with that, with the uh, personifying of the animals, Josh? No, I mean, I think I'm with you overall in that this is aimed at kids and this is the way to get them interested. And as long as they're not being inaccurate or misrepresenting, which maybe there is a little of that as well, especially in the way that some things are edited, I don't think it's a problem. You know, again, I found this less irritating than some of the more recent Disney films where they get, you know, this is narrated by just like some guy who worked at Disney, but now, you know, they get celebrities and not only do they anthropomorphize these animals, but they they give them all names and they kind of like make up 
relationships like, oh, these ones are friends or this is like a family or whatever. And it's it's complete balderdash. So. Uh, um, <laughs> a few of these had names. I forget, like Mr. Ma- Mr. Mouse or something like that. Right. right? There is the one the... Uh, skinny. Is he one of the yeah, he's one of the, the, the rats mm. that uh, that they name and he saves them from the Gila monster. But there's a lot, a lot more of that. Yeah. In, in some of the later ones. I mean, I get it. Like, again, it's a way to make people care. But also, um, one thing they did, and I think you got to give them credit, is like, they do talk about the ecosystem and kind of like the the food chain and the life cycle, but they weren't like, look out, Mr. Mouse, big bad snake, he's going to get you, right? Like, they were, <laughs> at least give them credit for being matter of fact of like, hey, you know, this animal's going to go eat this animal, but not if this animal eats that animal first, you know, that type of thing. Right. And it is, I mean, even it's being shown to kids, like there's some, there's some brutal animal on animal violence going on in this movie that they're not trying to shy away from necessarily. So, yeah, I mean, I think those are valid criticisms coming from stuffy adult film reviewers of the 1950s. But I think also that there's a reasonable uh, motivation behind making the movie that way. I would agree, sir. Yeah. So there were actually quite a lot of other critics that were just gushing in a really kind of sad way. And I just grabbed one of those. So uh, George Burke in the Miami Herald said, instead of the vast desert stretches and clumps of cactus, which have represented the desert life to us up to now, the miracle of telephoto lenses takes us right down into the sands and behind the plant life of the apparent wastelands to prove that life of a very violent sort does exist there. The color is magnificent. The film's chief greatness, however, is represented in the intruding close-up shots of desert life in its very rawest. There are too many sequences of sheer stark realism, some of them inspirational because of the element of primitive courage they contain, to comment adequately on here. The Living Desert packs the thrills of a dozen other so-called Westerns. Yeah, definitely got that feeling of John Wayne in there. Right. Definitely got that. I, I mean, we do, get, we do get Monument <laughs> Valley in the beginning of the movie here, which is where John Ford shot many of his films. It's beautiful landscape and it looks good. And, you know, I mean, it reminded me of when we covered Baraka on this show in yeah. a way. But, um... You know, this one, like you said, is a little more overt where that one's just kind of meditative and rhythmic. Um, But yeah, I mean, I could see this like if you I mean, because I'm guessing most of those shorts, right? Like, how would people have seen those? back in like 50 where they would have been played before the features or something like that right yeah i assume you maybe you would go see a disney animated movie and it would play before you know uh, lady and the tramp or something like that right so the difference is like the focus right you're like okay this is a good eight minutes i can just you know drink soda and eat popcorn and get through it and finally see that those two dogs spaghetti kiss each other or whatever you know but um much as they do in nature (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i i can see like being lost in this as um a further you know a deeper subject as something like hey we're going to give this time and breath as opposed to just like check out fun things in the desert here's lady and the tramp right right yeah and i i would imagine that i mean this movie was a huge hit so i'm sure it did captivate a lot of kids in 1953 for the entire i mean it's a short movie it still as a feature goes it's like 70 minutes long it's not long but it's long enough that it it definitely has to work to hold 
your attention. And I think it's- Yeah, I definitely got bored of parts. (laughs) Well, Jason has less of an attention span than the typical eight-year-old in 1953. I mean, that's that's clear. That's- Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess we kind of went over this, but um, you you had not seen this or any of these True Life Adventures before? I don't think I saw these. um, You know, we all know about them, of course, you know, but- um, Never had seen it. Um, uh, I did read that uh, uh, Paul Kenworthy, who was one of the directors of photography, had shot that wasp versus tarantula fight. And uh, that was kind of the um, imperative once they saw that. They're like, yeah, we think we could turn something like this into a feature. And that's where they put this team together with him and James Alger and Winston Hibbler and Ted Sears. And they kind of went out and made it on the Sonoran Desert. and. Uh, Arizona. And there you go, Josh. The rest is Oscar history. Indeed. So yes, uh, Paul Kenworthy, who, I mean, James Alger, the director, but it seems like Paul Kenworthy and the uh, other cinematographer did a lot of the work. Um, Robert Crandall is the other cinematographer. And, you know, which is, I think, the case now, too, with a lot of these Disney nature movies, where uh, this BBC nature team goes out and gets all the footage and then uh, there's another credited director who kind of puts it into this disnified narrative story, with, right. with a wacky, yeah, with a story and some celebrity voices. And, and and we probably talked about this in Baraka, but these guys don't, the people who actually go out and shoot this stuff don't get enough credit to because one, it's not easy. And two, they capture these magnificent uh, scenes in nature that, you know, a spoiler alert, are not rehearsed. And they're able to catch them in such unique and fanciful angles. Like, it's really an impressive job when done well. Yeah, I mean, and as much as, like, you might wonder if some things here are manipulated, like, there's only so much manipulating you can do to, like, wasps and tarantulas. Like, they're not going to take direction. Yes, well, remind me of that in the legacy section when we can talk about James Alger and his manipulation of nature yeah, documentaries. So. There is that that we'll get to. So, um, did you yeah, ever I, see? The, you never saw any of these, Josh? Or? I I don't think so. But these are the kinds of things that, especially the shorts, I feel like they would have shown on the Disney Channel, like in between movies or in between episodes of stuff, you know, to fill time because they didn't have commercials. And I'm sure I saw bits and pieces of these, whether it was this one or other ones, there wasn't anything that some, you know, sometimes will happen. You watch something and suddenly it'll trigger this memory. Like, wait a minute. I remember as a child having seen this, even if you hadn't consciously realized it, but nothing came up like that for me. So probably not, but I think I probably had seen some clips of various Disney true life adventure movies over time, maybe in school. I don't, I don't, but uh, Dave, had you seen this? I, I'm kind of in the exact same boat as you, Josh, where it's like you you see these things and the voice and the the music and the way these things are shot. And you're like, I had to have seen some of this, but I none of it really rang a bell, though. Dave thinks that Darkwing Duck is a Disney nature documentary. Hey, man, I like Darkwing Duck. <laughs> <laughs> did you watch this with your daughter jason or just alone no nah, i watched it alone Josh. all right do you think she would like it or get bored i think both i think she would be <laughs> like me she's like it's fascinating but then she would get bored and then she'd come back into it at the more exciting sequences yeah. all right uh anything else on the background of this film you want to talk honestly about? i feel like we've covered the entire historical background of this film like very thoroughly in this segment we- We have indeed. So then we'll come back and get into more of our general thoughts on the living desert. 
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we have been talking about the Disney nature documentary, The Living Desert. Look out, Josh, a Western diamondback rattlesnake's in your path. Oh, no. <laughs> that's, uh, thank you for, that sounds like a very researched quip that you <laughs> made sure to get the no right way, type Josh. of rattlesnake. I uh, clearly know my Sonoran desert animals. Front and clearly, mm-hmm. clearly. So uh, yes, we 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 live in the desert here in uh, in Las Vegas, as I think Jason might have mentioned at the last uh, at the end of our last episode that we were looking forward to seeing our desert kin. Yeah, here. but of course, you know, on our day to day lives, we don't see curve build thrashers or lesser long nosed bats. No, mm-hmm. no, we don't. Although we might see scorpions and um, I see those iguanas yeah. and cottontails, you know, things like yeah. that. So. Roadrunners. I just uh, saw a thing about local uh, roadrunners hanging out in, in Vegas here. So, yeah, I'm glad you said it. you saw a thing because you never leave your house. So I was going to be like, how did you see roadrunners in your house? So. <laughs> true, true. There were no roadrunners in my house. Thankfully, that would be weird yeah. and scary. But um, there are roadrunners. On the roads here in Las Vegas. So, Josh, were you captivated the whole time? I felt like this was an easy movie to like be like, oh, that's cool. And then you're like, what? There's still 40 minutes left to go in this thing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say I was captivated the whole time. It is an easy movie to watch. And it's an easy movie to kind of just have as pleasant background noise sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think maybe... This is a real technical achievement for the time, obviously, as reflected in all those reviews. But the ability to capture this footage has developed so much in the last 60 years, 70 years. (laughs) What is time? Um, That I think you watch modern nature documentaries and it's just so much more majestic looking. They can get so much more in depth and they can both both in terms of the micro and the macro get you so much more. So there are bits of this movie that are boring. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, you you know, we've talked about that tarantula versus wasp fight. That was pretty cool, the way they were able to get all that. I mean, you love seeing things die. <laughs> I guess, yeah. No, that was amazing. And as you said, that that footage from Paul Kenworthy was what inspired Disney to say, yes, let's make this movie. So yeah, of course, that that bit is amazing. And there's a lot of amazing, cool footage in this movie um the other the like hawk versus rattlesnake which i think jason that you must have liked you mentioned in your letterboxd review that was pretty cool that's kind of the climactic moment right and that has to do also with that rattlesnake chasing that mouse into the tunnels right and yeah. I, I and you were talking about footage being manipulated maybe some mouse tunnels uh, built on set there a little inspiration from our 1980 yeah. caddyshack <laughs> yeah there are a couple of shots where they show the mouse in the tunnel from like a side view and i'm like there's no way they put the, the camera where is the camera that this yeah, tunnel is yeah, properly how, constructed here how much how much of the side of the desert did they dig out right. for shot? <laughs> yeah so there's definitely there's definitely some of that but i mean but again like i was saying before you can only do so much direction with animals like this so they're going to do what they're going to do. They're not going to follow your instructions. And so I'm sure the majority of this is natural that they capture. Yeah, I don't mind that. There's some crazy stuff like when that um those boars are chasing that bobcat and the bobcat has to like climb on this giant cactus and like just get pricked over and over again just sitting on this 
huge cactus like waiting for these boars to leave it alone like that's that's pretty wild that they were able to get all that you know yeah and then it 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 falls off because the cactus breaks and under its weight and then it has to run up to another cactus and yeah there's some great stuff that again is involves i know a lot of these nature documentaries the main characteristic i think you need to have as a cinematographer for this is just patience to wait and wait and wait until the animals do something cool that you can capture i'd say knowledge also probably takes a lot of research you know yeah josh um the thing is like you know we keep talking about the animals but the landscape stuff a lot of the time was just as interesting seeing you know kind of the mudslides or whatever else was going on and and just the shape of the desert is so like it's pretty awesome like the desert like i love driving through it and um it's great to see stuff like that yeah i agree and i i love the scenery too i also love driving through it i don't actually like want to leave my car and interact with it but how do you get to how do you even get to your car when you don't leave your house well my car is in my garage which is attached (laughs) to my house so that works out i do occasionally drive it's like an umbilical cord you're still tethered yeah totally but uh no i mean i haven't really driven out in the desert in a while but when i used to drive yeah, you know, several years ago to california or drive to laughlin here in nevada through a lot of empty stretches of desert like that was always really cool to see that landscape is very beautiful and i uh, i like seeing it here in this movie too now josh this is a perfect opportunity to reveal something about yourself that i think our listeners will appreciate oh tell, boy no no this is a good thing tell everyone why you used to drive to laughlin every year i i used to go on uh trips to laughlin as a kind of a, a little break from work and get stay in a hotel there and relax and and watch movies in the hotel yeah room. that that's right well, he would take his vacation from being a movie reviewer, go to a hotel and just watch the movies he hadn't seen. That's a man who loves movies. In fact, he would call up the hotels to make sure they had the proper equipment or setup, in which case he would bring his own equipment. And he spent his vacation in Laughlin, which is not really a place you want to go on vacation, but just to watch more movies. This guy loves the movies. I do love the movies. And yeah, I mean, the idea there was to watch movies that I was not obligated to write uh, about or to review just for my own enjoyment. And I I will say after like years of doing those visits, I kind of have a soft spot for Laughlin. Yeah. uh, I performed in Laughlin a few times. I could see myself. I like Laughlin. Yeah. It has some lovely desert scenery to bring it back (laughs) to the actual topic of this episode. It's swampy, you know, because of the rivers and everything. Yeah. You know, it works for you, Josh, because you stayed in inside watching the movies. But if you were outside, you'd get bitten by those mosquitoes. That wouldn't have been fun for you. I don't know if there there was there's like the the something. What are the caddisflies that are really I don't know how much they have mosquitoes there, but those caddisflies get really bad. Well, when Um, Disney puts out their true adventure, Laughlin nature documentary, this will be settled. I am looking forward to that. I will be first in line to watch the Disney nature documentary about Laughlin. And and, and if you happen to miss it, you can go to Laughlin, rent a hotel room and watch it in your hotel room in Laughlin. I totally, I totally would do that. Yes. I mean, absolutely. Like I said, I'll watch, I'll watch this nature documentary about the desert that is literally right around us, but I would not actually leave the house to go experience that desert. (laughs) But uh, Dave, you go camping, right? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And uh th- th- you're you're right. Like the the landscapes are just as important as the animals here. Like it, it it's really beautifully captured and you know, obviously, you know, 
the planet doesn't change that much. Um, but it's interesting to see it being captured, like like you said, 70 years ago, like seeing those places that we've driven through, you know, versus what they look like now. And if we were to watch some modern nature documentary, it's just, it's cool to see, you know, especially if you take pride in the place you're from. I mean, yeah, yeah the planet does change because we're decimating it because we're awful. True, yeah. but it's 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 a slow process. I did wonder, I was going to look up because they show the salt and sea and I think the Salton Sea has totally dried up by now. Is that not right? Yeah. I mean, the last mm, thing I saw probably. of the Salton Sea was the Val Kilmer movie. Yeah. So that was that was environmentally damaging. <laughs> That's a deep cut for you. Dave, where do you go camping? Mostly up uh like Great Basin, Great Basin National Park. Um, up in that, which actually there's a documentary out right now about that. I'm looking forward to watching. But uh yeah, it's like northern Nevada. Yeah. Not in the desert. Well, actually, it's north of Vegas, so it's Souther, the Souther award, South, Souther, the Northern Nevada, you know. All right. Thank you, Dave. That's what happens when the you next Disney True Life Balderdash adventure. your way to education, <laughs> Josh. Jason, what was your favorite animal in this film? Oh, that's a good question, Josh. Um, uh, the mice were actually surprisingly cute, you know. Um, that Gila monster is an imposing figure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's where I'm staying. And yeah, I liked watching the hawk murder the rattlesnake. I'm not going to lie. So. Yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> I liked, I did like the kangaroo rats. They were, they were kind of cute and they have their little pouches and whatever. I thought they were fun. They seemed very resourceful. I think that was what we were talking about. Skinny, he was one of them, yeah. I think, that who saved the day when he boarded uh, the, the Gila monster. So that was, uh, that was pretty fun. I thought that was pretty cool because that snake who did get murdered with, the mice would just kick dirt in its eyes because it had no way of protecting its eyes. That was a good defense mechanism. Yeah, there's that's the fun little thing that I feel like you can learn from these these movies where it's like these weird quirks that these animals have to defend themselves. Or in in other nature documentaries, you'll it'll talk about like the the symbiotic relationship between animals that you wouldn't expect to have any connection to each other and how this the whole ecosystem kind of works together. So that's always interesting to watch. Yeah. What was the scene where the one animal got stuck in the other animal's mouth and you thought it was going to die, but then it somehow escaped, it like escaped out of the mouth. Yeah. The, the toad, the toad eats, uh, eats a beetle and then, or attempts to eat a beetle and the beetle like uses its pincers to, to oh. get the toad's tongue and the toad spits it out. Oh so, my God. Yeah. Nature's crazy. I thought there was another, but that's, I, that's the one I recall. Yeah. Yeah, well, you guys aren't mentioning the best scene in the entire movie, which is that, which it is, of course, the Scorpion Square Dance. Yeah, um, I was getting yeah. to that. Yes. <laughs> and that is the number one example, obviously, of the manipulation of footage in this film. The the courtship, as I say, there's a lot of moments in here where they ascribe heteronormative patriarchal values to these animals. <laughs> the best and, kind. Right, guys? Yeah. Huh? Totally. Yeah. Let's yes. go on record and just say that. Thank you, Jason. That's what we scorpion want dudes there. rock. Um, and so the two scorpions are doing their mating dance of some kind, and obviously there really is some kind of dance-like thing happening. But they play this like cokey square dance music, and the the poor narrator has to sort of attempt to sing this little square dancey song. And they're clearly just looping the footage back and forth to make the yeah. the scorpions look like they're dancing. And then they have this footage of an owl which may not even be anywhere near the scorpions as if it's watching them. And it's, 
it's also looped so that its head is moving back and forth like the night at the Roxbury guys. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of hilarious. Personally, I think they should have put Rocky like a hurricane under there. You know, have the scorpions mm. dance to Klaus Mina and the scorpions and everything. Nice. But uh, whatever, Josh. Yeah, uh, I mean, exactly. And like I said, it's not like they don't do this. You you mentioned the scorpions, who, of course, did not exist in 1953. But I remember <laughs> watching, uh, I think it was a the penguin one, maybe that the, a recent Disney one. And there's some bit, I think, where the penguin chicks start taking their first tentative steps or whatever and they play here i go again by white snake <laughs> like uh, come on and that's that actually happens in josh of course talking about the nature documentary happy feet happy feet no that was a real it's i'm telling it's in it's in pink i think it's just called march penguins. of the penguins remember no, march not, of the penguins that was a yeah big one. that was a good one but no this was a disney one that was just called penguins i uh, believe they weren't so. marching but no, well, they were, but you couldn't call it March of the Penguins because that's right. a different movie. Did you guys learn anything interesting from this one? Because like, I was surprised about the tortoises manufacturing water in their body. Yeah, that was interesting. And the kangaroo rats did it too, they said. Right. I, right. I mean, that tunnel, the tunneling and the all the mouse defense mechanisms are the things that I learned about. Mm -hmm. So yeah. if I go to the desert and try to catch a mouse, what I'm going to do is block up a secondary tunnel of them and then they'll be trapped because there's i've already beaten their escape hatch uh-huh uh-huh that's a good call good plan I think yeah. that's gonna come in by the way if i go to the desert and uh try to catch a mouse it's pretty much all over for me fellas <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know what what is motivating you to do that <laughs> that's exactly my point here now that i look back at it i don't think uh things are going well for me at that point <laughs> Uh, yeah. So I, I feel like we've really covered this film, which is, a you know, it's a very simple short film, but it's, 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 it's nice. It's, it's fun. So, uh, are there any other highlights, Jason, that you feel like we should talk about? No, no more highlights, Josh. No, that's it. No that's the end. Dave, Dave, was there anything else you liked or you just wanted to mention the Scorpion's Great Ants? <laughs> I, I like when the narrator called the hawk old butterclaws when he misses this. <laughs> yeah, and that, that is, I will say, that is one sequence where, where the hawk is trying to hunt bats and they're all flying in the air and the hawk is trying to fly at them where you can tell, like now, if they wanted to shoot that, they would be able to get up close even in the air to show you the hawk grabbing a bat. But here it's all shot from very far away and you can't see very much. So that narrator yeah. is Winston Hibbler. Josh, I personally would have liked it if he would have taken a side in some of these battles. Like if, <laughs> if, like when the hawk got onto that snake, it was like, die, you miserable rattling bastard. <laughs> you rattler son of a bitch. Yeah, no, he was uh, he was pretty uh, he was pretty neutral other than his uh, promotion of, uh, you know, the patriarchal values that we've discussed earlier. Yeah. Which yeah. you have said are still the right values for us to live. Yeah, in. definitely quote me on that. So, <laughs> yes. so should we rate this movie out of five? Uh, I don't know what what animal do we want to choose to be the the avatar of this film for our rating. I don't know. It could be mudblubs. Mudblubs. We did forget yeah. to mention the symphony of the mudblubs, which is <laughs> yeah. obviously very very heavily edited of the these these bubbling. Uh, I guess was that in the Salton Sea too, where the the mud bubbles start after it rains, and they they set it to this this rousing classical music. No, Josh, the mud blubs went off, and then they had to find music that matched it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was clearly what it was. It was all natural. Yeah. So, uh, Josh, here's where it is for me. Like I said, I was impressed the whole time, but not uh, enthralled the whole time. So, 
technical achievement uh if i'm adding everything together it's three from an enjoyment standpoint it's like two and a half yeah that's fair i'm kind of with you i i I would say i'll i'll give it a i'll give it a three and uh it is more of a curiosity in terms of the development of this kind of filmmaking than it is like super fun to watch but it is fun to watch at times so yeah three for me dave my blood I'm going to four, which may be overrating it a little bit, but I was just laughing throughout. There's so much ridiculous in here that I had a good time. So I went all the way to four. Wow. Okay. One more, my blood. Blah, blah. Thank you, Jason. (laughs) All right. We'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of the living desert. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we have been talking about the Disney True Life documentary, The Living Desert. And as we have been talking about, these True Life adventures were a big thing for Disney. This was the first feature-length one, but there had been a number of shorts, and they continued uh, under this brand name through 1960. There were two others that won the Best Documentary Feature Oscar, both The Vanishing Prairie and White Wilderness, both directed by James Algar. Mm. And uh, I think five of the short ones that also won Oscars for Best Documentary Short. And uh, Jason, do you want to talk about the uh, horrifying thing in uh, White (laughs) Wilderness from 1958? So... This is the one that they did the uh, investigation on like years later, right? Like in the 80s or something. The CBC Canadian Broadcast Company, who, by the way, if I'm going to recommend podcasts to you guys, like if you like like true crime and investigative podcasts, the CBC, awesome stuff. Um, So they started doing this um, investigative report on like, hey, are all these are some of these nature documentaries staged? And what were they, muskrats or something, Josh? The they're, animals? they're lemmings. Lemmings, they're right? Lemmings. So um, this this guy, right, our, our three-time Oscar-winning, four-time really, uh, friend uh, Alger, not only uh, staged some stuff with lemmings, but he, he staged mass suicides with them, where they're all jumped to their death. Like, they just plunge into, what, like icy cold water or something like that. Yeah. So he's a he's a genocidal uh, maniac when it comes to lemmings is what I'm telling you. So wait, do they not do that at all? And is that an urban legend based on his staging? Well, here's the thing. And what I was unsure of is there are other lemmings uh, who might do that. But the species that he was using specifically were like lemmings in Canada. And the the scientists like, yeah, our lemmings don't even migrate. So they wouldn't kill themselves or. But maybe you're right. Maybe that maybe he made the whole thing up for the documentary. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that this this pervasive cultural idea, it's like it's, you know, it's a common cliche of like, oh, yeah, yeah. lemmings all just it's it's based on this Disney movie that was fake. Mm. <laughs> that is awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really puts uh, things into perspective when you're murdering. Can I take my four star back down to three? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 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 that that one also won the Oscar for best Do you think he was like, come on guys, we gotta get the lemmings from that suicide. <laughs> We're never gonna win if we don't. Yeah, once you win that first Oscar, you just keep chasing it. Right you to gotta your get, head. raise the stakes or whatever. <laughs> I mean, so. Josh, maybe he thought he was never gonna survive unless he got a little bit crazy. Uh-huh. But that was that was a seal, not a lemon. I know, but what he did is crazy, Josh. 
True, true. It is. And yeah, it's so pervasive. Dave, I don't know. Do you remember? Wasn't there a video game where there were sure. lemmings that were just jumping lemmings off Lemmings is a classic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Balder lemmings. Balder, right. Balder I think lemmings. it was just called lemmings. I don't remember, but yes. I played that as a kid. So no. yeah, all all thanks to, to James Algar. As far as I know, the Academy has never uh, rescinded the Oscar. And I wonder if that movie is still available on Disney Plus yeah. because uh, almost all of these are. Yeah, Academy so white, more like Academy so anti lemming. Yeah. <laughs> um, James Algar also did the very, he directed the very famous uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence in Fantasia. Um, but really, these other guys, Josh, uh, Winston Hibbler, Ted Sears, when we were talking about like this time period of like, hey, yeah, you know, I'm going to go direct 40 movies and then write another 40. These guys, uh, Sears was the first head of a Disney story department and did story work on movies, including Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, Bambi, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, for which he wrote song lyrics, Lady in the Tramp and Sleeping Beauty. So that's pretty amazing. And he also did the voice in Pinocchio before it was reimagined with child actor Dickie Joe. Yeah. And I thought it was hilarious. And I mean, just, I guess, indicative of how Disney worked at the time that like James Alger, the director and the writers, like they were just people who worked on animated movies. And Walt Disney was like, how about you guys go make a nature documentary? Like you're qualified for that. Right. And that's just, that's well, what they did. Well, that was the, right. That studio system, everyone's under a contract and you know, Hibbler uh, was a writer on a lot of the movies that I just mentioned. And he narrated this thing and you know these guys they they were prolific yeah yeah algar was the main director on all of these true life adventures films for for a number of years and um but you know as you pointed out the the real like n nature technicians here the cinematographers um paul paul kenworthy who captured all that that amazing footage he also shot a, a few other Disney nature documentaries. And then I'm not sure what happened to his career after the 1950s. He doesn't have any other credits. But in 1978, he did win a non-competitive Oscar for technical achievement for being one of the inventors of the snorkel camera system, which I assume is something to shoot underwater. So mm. was still maybe working behind the scenes on like equipment and stuff like that, even if not as a cinematographer. Now, now Josh, how did you come to that uh, summation? that the snorkel was for, <laughs> was for use underwater. I mean, this is the kind of critical thinking skills <laughs> that I bring to this podcast. So <laughs> This is final. why you need those extra weeks in Laughlin, just to put thoughts like this together. Right, yeah. I'm ruminating on all this stuff when I'm, uh, when I'm alone. <laughs> so, um, as we mentioned, these features were... Uh, split up into educational short films. That was in 1974. This was split into three films that were used for educational uh, use. And this is definitely the kind of movie that you can imagine, like the substitute teacher, you know, in your science class or something, like wheeling out the TV and the VCR to put this on <laughs> when uh, they don't want to have to teach. And I'm sure that happened a lot in a lot of schools for for decades, really. You know, you want to know something, Josh? Yeah. I had a music teacher named Mrs. White, and uh, who was African-American, already off to a, a divergent start in this story. And she did not like me at all. And when she <laughs> showed movies in music class, I remember she showed 
Sound and Music, and she let the good kids watch the movie, and she made me and the rest of the bad kids look at the back of the television. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> nice. What makes it even worse is I heard in other schools, because she taught in like five different schools, she just let the kids that she didn't like go out and play basketball. Like, why couldn't we go do that? Yeah, yeah. So, well, at least you got to hear it, though, right? You had to watch the back of the TV, but you could hear all the songs. Yeah, but like, come on, man. That's right. not a. That's not no, a... no, it's definitely not. That's definitely not as good. So, Jason's traumatic childhood. I can't wait until we we do an episode on the sound of music someday. I, maybe that's the reason I've never watched it fully. <laughs> yeah, that'll be really a healing process for you. I think if we ever yeah. get to yeah. that. Well, hey, man, it all makes sense. The sound of music. They're running from nazis in this movie produced by walt disney there's a lot of combinations mm. that might maybe uh, i got no nothing move on josh jason jason you clearly want to talk about walt disney's anti-semitism <laughs> so let's just have it well i mean he didn't he didn't mass suicide a bunch of jews like alger did a bunch <laughs> of lemmings so i mean i guess he's got that going for him no we just have to you just have it's got to be out in the open doesn't it josh Right. I mean, Disney himself had, I mean, he was also racist and uh, anti-union and a lot of unfortunate things that go along with the great that he did. And, um, you know, he created a corporation that is now seemingly owns 50% of pop culture, which he didn't do himself, but right. certainly put it and on his track. own, his granddaughter or Roy, is it Roy Disney's granddaughter? Or his I think so. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's his like grandniece or something. Abigail Disney. Yeah. yeah. She's talking about against them all the time, how they uh, lost the values of the company. True. True indeed. But as we've literally just pointed out, maybe the values of the company weren't all that great to begin with. Um, so Jason, have you seen any of those more recent Disney nature documentaries that I was talking about? I think I uh, definitely have, or at least seen bits and pieces, but I couldn't tell you, Josh, it's everything's a blur right now. Yeah, they all do kind of blur together. I was looking up, I think I've seen four of them for various reasons, just because, I mean, they, they have released them once a year in the spring, usually around Earth Day. And I remember seeing Earth, which was the big relaunch of that Disney nature brand in 2007. And I also saw Penguins, as I mentioned, not March of the Penguins, mm -hmm. as well as Elephant, narrated by Meghan Markle, and Dolphin Reef, narrated by Natalie Portman, which I think was the most egregious in terms of like giving all the dolphins names and personalities. Hey, and squeaky, all what do you have to say for yourself, Squeaky? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah. So they should make a documentary about uh, how. Dolphins rape humans sometimes. <laughs> That's such an odd phenomenon in nature to me that if you're swimming along, a dolphin might just come up and rape you. Yeah, I, mean, I guess well, you're not maybe really that's made up by a documentary. Maybe that doesn't. It really does happen. sound like an alger, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Algorith an algorithm. Algorithm. Yeah. Oh, there we oh, go. Okay. Yeah. I think that's where we got to stop. Then maybe unless you all right. Mention anything else here on Josh, the legacy of this? No, we've literally covered this movie every which way you can including <laughs> lemming mass suicide <laughs> stagings and monolith company anti-semitism i don't know what else there is josh much as disney would have intended <laughs> so that is the living desert and that is this episode of awesome movie year you can document our presence online and on social media. You sure can. I'm still Jason Harris comedy or J Harris comedy on all the socials. Uh, of course, you can go for Jason. 
that's my name on Letterbox. Also go for Jason, eaten by a Gila monster. So my website is somewhere in the belly of a monster in the Sonoran Desert. Of course, we're AwesomeMovieYear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Don't forget to eat this comedy in the trivia party. Yeah, check out all Jason's cool stuff and check me out at joshbellhateseverything.com at uh, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And if you join that Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces uh, Facebook group, you can tell us about your favorite nature documentary. Maybe mm. yeah, or your favorite racist company boss. <laughs> Either one, right? Dave will Dave will accept both of those posts. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, sure. Jason, what's in our next episode? Oh, Josh, it's your pick. So why would I tell everybody? I'm not an asshole. You tell them. All right. Well, my pick is Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, starring Marilyn Monroe. So tune in next time for that. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.